Well, I want to begin tonight by reading something a little different. I want to begin by reading the promotional material for Noah the Musical that was presented for a few years at Sight and Sound Theater in Branson. Straight from the Bible, Noah the Musical offers an accurate retelling of the story of Noah and his ark. While these biblical events may be familiar to you, you'll ne- you've never seen the story of Noah presented in this way. With elements such as live animals, grand fashion, an onstage ark, and an unbelievably intricate set design, Noah the musical will bring the story of Noah to life right before your very eyes. Guests will travel alongside Noah on his journey to attempt to fulfill the wish of God He's surrounded by seemingly impossible odds and the scrutiny of non-believers and becomes overwhelmed at times. Noah the Musical uses a state-of-the-art set designed to provide the audience with a totally immersive experience. Yes, it says that. You'll get an intimate experience of the joy that Noah feels as his work comes to fruition and as he leads live animals through the crowds. You'll feel like you're inside the ark. The set design towers four stories above the stage with all striking staging, interactive special effects, uplifting original music numbers, and scripting. You can't make this up. (laughs) This larger-than-life experience can only be improved by the theater's live and animatronic animals, pyrotechnics state-of-the-art sound and lighting. All these methods contribute to this timeless story, bringing it to life for the audience in a very truthful and immersing way. I'm going to stop there. And I'll I'll be completely transparent. I did not go. I didn't see it. Some of you may have, and that's fine. But I think it's safe to say that it was not an accurate retelling that they promoted. Because had they truly brought the story of li- to life right before our very eyes, it would have been a traumatic experience for everybody in the room. And that's because the story is not actually in the terms that many of our Christian radio stations use. You know, it's not safe for the whole family. If we're to use the movie rating system today, it would not be rated G. It would probably be PG-13 and maybe even R. An accurate account would not be a good musical. And that's due to the fact that there are portions of the story that are absolutely offensive. There are portions of the story that bring discomfort and displeasure and disgust. There are portions that definitely provoke protest. And that's because if you described or if we portrayed accurately this story there would have, or if they had, there would have been real depictions of intense, persistent, and graphic violence. 
and even scenes of nudity. And we don't think about that an awful lot because most of the children or all of the children's versions of the story, whether in print form or video form or uh, nursery wall form or musical production, they all usually include pictures or images and scenes of Noah and his family, uh, pictures and images and scenes of the before and after of the ark and the animals, both going in and coming out. Pictures and images, of course, of the rainbow. But what are typically missing, <clears throat> what are missing are images and scenes of terrified people screaming for help, banging on the side of the ark, climbing trees, sitting on limbs, scaling rocks, racing to higher ground to escape the rising water. There are no images or scenes of weeping people as they cling to floating debris or as their heads are bobbing up and down trying to stay above water. There are no images or scenes of the unimaginable numbers of bodies and carcasses that would have risen to the top within 24 to 48 hours of having drowned. But the safe for the whole family versions not only lack accurate illustrations, they lack accurate applications as well. You see, typically the applications are made like this. You are special like Noah. And so you can do special things like Noah did. Do special or do something special for God. Be willing to be used by God. But the more specific and actual application is, Noah wasn't special. God was merciful. And yes, we need to be like Noah. But we need to be like Noah and put our faith in God. And you do that by getting in the ark. You see, the reality is this story tells us that salvation comes through judgment. And that salvation is by God's grace alone. And it will only be experienced fully and completely in the new creation. And it actually doesn't come through Noah. It comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a summary of where we're going to be over the next five weeks. This is but the first of five. This is merely introductory. In verses 9 to 22. I want us to see four things tonight. I want us to see that the flood was a, or an historic event. It was an, a, a reflective event. It was a deliberative event. And it was a purposeful event. You find that outline in the back of your bulletin. <clears throat> Children, follow along with the words that are there for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before uh, we continue. Heavenly Father, in these moments, would you, <clears throat> would you give us humble 
and contrite hearts and spirits. Open our ears and our eyes and enlighten us, enlighten our hearts, awaken our attention. Keep us from all worldly wisdom. And would you attend with power the truth preached. May we in in these moments be convicted and edified and refreshed and comforted. Grant me grace and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you tonight, for the good of your church. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, first, we need to see that uh, the importance of this being an historic event. Uh, And I want us to notice first, notice there are uh, the names that were given. Names of historical people. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They're men who we saw last week all came from the line of Seth. And we're going to see... In chapter 10, in a few weeks, that these men and their wives will be used to repopulate the earth. And of course, we know from our study of Luke chapter 3 that Christ himself comes or came from the line of Shem. Notice too, uh, the specific dates and the time periods that Moses used. In chapter 7, you have to look over at chapter 7 verse 11. He says, the flood began in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the 6th month On the 17th day of the month. And then in verse 24 of chapter 7, he tells us that the water prevailed upon the earth for 150 days or five months. And then in chapter 8, verse 4, he tells us that at the end of those 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the Mount of Ararat, which, of course, is a or an actual geographic location. And then notice we have detailed, a detailed description of the architectural design of the ark. Look at verse 14. He says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is, how are you to, you are, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side Make it with lower, second, and third decks. So we have a boat that's 450 feet long or equivalent to a football uh, or one and a half football fields. 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Probably uh, square footage around 95,700. May have weighed around 14,000 pounds. And you say, well, wait a minute. How do I... Does that all really tell us that this was a historical event? Couldn't Moses have just made those things up? Couldn't it have just been a story? And couldn't he have, you know, thought up those dudes and dates and designs? And the answer is yes, that's possible. But Jesus and Peter didn't think so. Listen to their words. In Luke 17, we read these words of Jesus. He said, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. 
And in his second epistle, Peter wrote this, For if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Jesus and Peter both believed that the flood was a historic event. And it's important that we believe that as well because the ultimate judgment to which it points is just as real. All of the questions regarding species and and kinds and numbers of animals and the questions about the amount of food that would have been necessary to feed the the eight uh, individuals and and up to maybe possibly 16,000 animals on the ark and and all the, the questions about, you know, how did they get rid of all that manure? And what about the, the odor, right? And the gases that would have been produced. Well, beloved, I believe those are just all distractions. They're all distractions. They're just a means by which people continue the centuries-old practice that began in creation after the fall of denying the fact that there is judgment for sin. It's easier to ask those questions than to face the facts. There are things we don't know, but those things don't nullify the things we do know. And it's the things we do know that we should give our attention to. The flood was a historic event, and it points to the future historic event when Christ will come, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And as we learn from our study of Luke, that day when he comes, when it happens, that day will be unique. It will be like none other. And as we learn then, Anything else, including the flood that we, are going, that we are beginning to look at tonight, will pale in comparison to it. And we need to keep that in the forefronts of our minds. So it's a historic event. But it's also a reflective event. And what I mean by that is it, it's an event that causes us to think about things that, that it parallels. <clears throat> things both before and after it that that it relates to or, can, or, or again, that, that, that parallels it. For example, next week, we're going to see the waters that, that God separated below the expanse and the waters that he separated above the expanse at creation are going to, be, are going to burst forth and they're going to come uh, pouring out of the windows of heaven. We're going to see the order that God brought to or, or the chaos that God brought order to in creation is going to return. But only for a time, because what God, in a sense, decreates, we know He recreates as the wind once again blew and the waters subsided. And then God charged Noah as He charged Adam to be fruitful and multiply. For in the words of Alan Ross, Noah would be the new man of the earth. But the flood not only causes us to reflect back on creation, it also causes us to look forward to and reflect on the tabernacle. 
Because in the words of Gordon Wenham, the ark and the tabernacle are the only structures described in the law. Some say the ark looked like a big coffin. But it was because it, it big rectangular box. But it was so much more than that because it was exactly three to exactly three times longer than the temple courtyard or tabernacle courtyard. And it was equal in width. And the height, because the the fence around the tabernacle was seven and a half feet high, there would have been roughly there could have been three tabernacles on each level in the ark for a total of nine. And there's some who even believe that the roof of the ark, like the tabernacle, was made of cloth or skins that would have been draped over the top. And this, of course, reminds us that the goal of creation was for God to dwell among His people. We learned that in our study of Leviticus. Having been dispelled from the garden, the next time God would dwell with His people would be in the tabernacle. And since the ark would be the means by which God would preserve humanity, it makes complete sense that it and the tabernacle would be familiar or similar. As one commentator put it, the place where God allows His glory to appear is the place whence the life of the people is preserved. The ark corresponds to this in the primeval event where the concern is for the preservation of humanity. Such is the significance of the construction of the ark because by means of it, God preserved humanity from destruction. The parallel between the ark and the tabernacle has a profound meaning. The people of Israel, which alone has in its midst the place where God reveals His glory, is part of the human race which exists now because it has been preserved by this same God. But the flood not only causes us to reflect at creation and reflect at the tabernacle, it also causes us, as I mentioned a moment ago, to reflect upon the future judgment of Christ, the judgment that he will exercise upon his return. And I want to take the last two points to kind of um, flesh that out a bit. You see, the flood was a deliberate event. It was a deliberate response. It was a deliberate response of judgment on the part of God for sin. And we have to remember the context. Aaron shared some of that last week because it began, the context began to be described in verse 5. You remember that the last time Moses described God as seeing or things that he saw, it was all very good. Well, now it is the exact opposite. The sin that had entered the garden through Adam was continuing its devastating downward spiral. To the point that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And these absolutes should startle us. Every. Not just one here or there. Every intention was only. There was 
There were no other options being exercised. They were only evil. (coughs) And they were only evil continually. Not periodically, not every once in a while, but all the time. Man had filled the earth as God had commanded, but they had filled it with wickedness and corruption and violence. Look at verse 11. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Moses couldn't have been more clear about the state of things. The world was being destroyed. Mankind was self-destructing. Every person... Every person who had been created in God's image was declaring with everything in them all the time that their will was more important than God's. Everything that they thought, said, and did said that what they wanted was more important than what He wanted. Autonomy was running amok. And they were devouring one another. So God looks at this this vast pit of degradation. And this perpetual and blatant rejection of Him and His authority. And He says, enough. Enough. Look at verse 13. I have... Determined. I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then down in verse 17, he says, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. This wasn't impulsive. It wasn't arbitrary, right? God is not capricious. It also wasn't a decision in which he took pleasure. He was disgusted with sin. It grieved him. But it was a just response. And it was a proportionate response. And what I mean by that is the severity of the flood was proportionate to the depravity of man's heart. It was no more, and it was also no less, than what the sinful state of man's heart deserved. In the words of Ligon Duncan, he said, When we see the scale of God's judgment in the flood, it is a picture of the perversity of man's heart, the pervasiveness of man's sin, And the heinousness of man's sin in the sight of God. The Creator would exercise His divine prerogative over His creation. He uh, he who had create, who had created, would now decreate. He who had raised up would now raise flat. What He had produced, He would now ruin. 
the God who had given would now take away. But he was actually only finishing what had already begun. In the words of Derek Kidner, the Hebrew makes it plain that what God decided to destroy had been virtually self-destroyed already. In the words of Gordon Wenham, he would ruin the earth that was already being ruined. He said it was a clear case of punishment fitting, of a punishment fitting the crime. And that brings us to the last point. It was also a purposeful event. It was a purposeful event. And to understand that thoroughly, we need to, to begin where, where Aaron took us last week and what he shared with us. And I want to simply quote what he said. He said, Genesis 6-8 tells us that God would blot out life from the face of the earth, but Noah found favor. We could even translate this as Noah found grace. Noah wasn't singled out for being perfect, but he was the object of God's electing gracious love because it is impossible to please God without faith, and Noah pleases God. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. But we're not told that until after we hear that Noah was shown favor. Noah's righteous life was not the basis of his acceptance before God. No fallen son of Adam can earn eternal life by his own righteousness. But here we see that while God was determined to demonstrate his righteousness through judgment, he was just as determined to keep his promise and to show grace. And that promise was the promise that God made to Eve back in Genesis 3.15. God, you remember, right? God had promised a seed through whom all would be made right. God promised that there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And had He not shown favor to Noah, that promise would not have been fulfilled. And He tells Noah as much in verse 18. Look what it says. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. Now I'm going to... we got five weeks to kind of flesh out the covenant with Noah, okay? One of the challenges of this was we broke it up. But then, anyway, we're going to get there. All I'm simply going to say tonight is that what's interesting is that the word, this is the first time the word is used, covenant is, is used. But it's a word, the word that's used doesn't describe the initial cutting of a covenant. The word that's used here is a word that describes the reaffirming of a covenant that has already been established. So what God's doing is he's, he's telling Noah that he, had, that he, God, had chosen him, Noah. He had chosen to show favor to Noah because Noah was the one through whom God had graciously determined according to his 
divine pleasure to keep his promise with Eve. Noah, you're the one. He was going to keep Noah alive to fulfill his purpose, his divine purpose of maintaining a line through Seth, through whom the seed, the Lord Jesus, would eventually be born. And verse 22 tells us that Noah, who... Verse 9 tells us, had already been responding to the favor that God had extended him by striving to honor the Lord and by seeking to live according to God's standard of right and wrong. Who had been desiring to be an upright man who glorified the, the Lord even uh, when it wasn't the popular thing to do. The one who he had been treasuring his communion with God above all things. Verse 22 tells us that Noah continued to respond to the grace that God had shown him by doing everything the Lord asked him to do. So he built the ark. And he gathered the animals. And he got all the food together. It took him 120 years, but he did it. And he, just, and he did it despite being alone in his generation. In the words of Derek Kidner, Noah went into the ark not as a mere survivor, but as the bearer of God's promise for the new age. So the purpose of the flood is evident, is it not? The purpose of the flood is to Put God's justice and judgment on display. But it's also to put the grace of God on display. God's favor. And its purpose is also to point to something greater than itself. See, the story... The story, quite honestly, that's missed when we take out that middle section that's so offensive and isn't safe. What's, what we miss is that judgment for sin is going to be certain, it's going to be immediate, it's going to be swift, and it's going to be terrible. And deliverance will only be by divine grace. We have to understand the judgment to understand the grace. And thanks be to God that our hope is not in Noah. We'll see why that is in just a couple weeks as well. 
Our hope is not in Noah. Our hope is in Christ alone. Our hope is in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ark of our salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one in whom we find and take our refuge. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who took on the water of judgment on our behalf. He is the only one in whom he is the only one in whom we and anyone else will be safe on that great and awe-filled day when he returns. And by the way, his judgment will not be with water, it will be with fire. So here are a few questions to, to kind of wrap this up and then to launch us forward. First, are you in the boat? Right? Are you in Christ? On the day of judgment, will you be found wanting due to your sin? Or will you be found forgiven and faithful due to your union with Him? He is our only hope for salvation. Secondly, is the grace that God has extended to you in Christ, is that grace resulting in obedience? Is your faith a working faith? Are you seeking to do all that God asks you to do out of gratitude? For him, to him. Thirdly, are you okay being in the minority when it comes to your faith and obedience? Are you willing to stand alone with Christ? And then finally, with, with our knowledge of the depravity of man and the severity and the comprehensiveness or the comprehensive nature of judgment for sin that is to come and awaits those whose hope is not in Christ, what would be the best use of our time? We've got we to take it all. Think of the flood. Think of the devastating nature of the flood. Think of what happened. Think that that's going to pale in comparison to judgment. What would be the best use of our time? Should we, to borrow a term, should we be community activists who fight the culture war and seek social and political reform and fly our flags and lobby for green energy in order to save the world? Or should we simply be active in our communities, loving one another and our neighbor? And urging others to get in the boat. Let's pray.